Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio on TalkZone.com. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio, where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're coming to you from Reno, Nevada, along the banks of the Truckee River. We're here, among other things, for the Reno River Fest and the Whitewater World Freestyle Kayaking Championships. On today's show, we'll give you a flavor for the Reno River Fest and the Reno-Tahoe region. First, we'll learn more about the Reno River Fest with Betsy McDonald. Then we'll tour one of the top attractions in Reno, the extraordinary National Automobile Museum, the Bill Hara Collection, and the fascinating stories behind some of the cars. And finally, we'll explore the underwater world of shipwrecks and treasure hunting with noted marine archaeologist Dr. E. Lee Spence and learn the story of the real Rhett Butler. Remember, if you have a question or a comment, write us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And we also look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So join us on our social networks and sign up for a newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. And just as an aside, we're here in Reno to accept an award for the best travel broadcast from the North American Travel Journalists Association. And uh, we're, we're very pleased and honored to have received this and uh, look forward to bringing you award-winning shows in future. We're here. We're here in Reno, Nevada. Yes. I want to make sure I get that yes. right. Reno, Nevada. That's right for the Reno River Festival. It's in its seventh year here on the Truckee River. It's the preeminent water festival event for Reno. And I'm here with Betsy McDonald, the director of public relations for the Reno River Fest. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, Betsy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, tell us about this wonderful festival. It's been growing year after year. You're expecting 50,000 people for this week, and what would people experience if they come? Well, essentially, although Reno is kind of a kind of a small city, this is the largest, um, as you said, most preeminent whitewater festival in the world. We have the top whitewater athletes from all over the world, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, um, and then across the United States, um, we have former Olympians. We have every single current world champion here right now. And in addition to all the whitewater action, um, there's free entertainment all weekend long. There's free bands. There's free yoga in the park. We'll teach you how to kayak for free um, with some free clinics. We have clinics just for women. We have the entire park is... Um, completely accessible for wheelchairs. We do clinics for adaptive whitewater clinics for anyone who may be disabled in any way. We'll put you out there on a river and send you out with some guides and teach you, you know, that that you can still have all kinds of fun even though you may have a disability of some sort. Um, we've also partnered with Sierra Summit Sunscreen because May is Melanoma Awareness Month. Um, that's a very big cause, especially on my part because I am a melanoma patient. We hand out sunscreen to everyone. Um, we want to make sure everyone's covered, everyone's safe. 
Um, so in addition also to all of those, um, we've really increased the green aspect of the festival this year. We've partnered with Sierra Nevada Brewing, and um, they produce compostable beer cups. So every single beer cup that is given out at this festival this weekend over the three days that, that we produce, every single cup will be composted. We have recycling all over, and we also have a biomass gasification unit which is essentially a humongous RV that en encases a power generator that's run from recycled Christmas trees. Now, one of the things about that generator is that it's actually providing a power for the soundstage here where all of the events are ta taking place here at the festival. Yep, that is correct. It has been powering our stage since Thursday, actually. It is powered through six different bands. It is powered through awards ceremonies and announcements and and all kinds of stuff. I mean, this is our stage is probably 100 feet by 100 feet, and it has powered it all weekend long. We had a video contest earlier on Friday that it powered. Um, so we hope it's really going to make a difference. Now, it may surprise the rest of the world here. We're in a very urban setting here in downtown Reno, this wonderful Riverfront Park and Esplanade. We've got uh, high-rise buildings nearby, condos and other buildings that really give quite a different urban feel that people may not necessarily expect to see when they think of whitewater rafting. Tell us about how this event came to be here in downtown Reno and, and how it's kind of grown over the years. Well, you're you're certainly very right about the urban um, aspect of the festival. A lot of, and that's why we get so many of the world's top kayakers because normally you have to hike for two or three hours with a 50-pound boat on your back to do one run down a, down a waterfall or or a good set of rapids. And here you can walk from your house, get in the river, get in either side of the river. We have a freestyle side and a slalom side because the river splits into an island. Um, and then they can get out and walk and, and go have lunch. Um, the Whitewater Park came to be, we've obviously always had the Truckee River in Reno. It flows, it's the only river that flows out of Lake Tahoe, so it's beautiful, sparkling, clean, snow melt, mountain water. Um, Wingfield Park, where we're sitting right now, is an island because the river forks. And about seven years ago, they decided you know, we need to bring more people back to downtown Reno. Let's clean it up. Let's let's kind of defy the stereotypes of, you know, kitschy downtown gambling Reno. So they hired Jim Litchfield, who is actually now one of the owners of the Reno River Festival. He's a hydrologist, so he designed a whitewater park. We dammed off one side of the river and built the freestyle side, and then we opened it back up and dammed off the other side and built the slalom side. And ever since then, it's just been a, a huge success. People hang out at the river all year long, all kids, kids, families. People come here on dates. We do best of polls in our, our local newspaper, and it's almost always listed as best place for a first date. Um, art town happens down here, lots of festivals and events, and, um, you know, there's the stage down here, and it's just, it's a beautiful place, flowers everywhere. You're surrounded by beautiful buildings. This is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Reno, so there's lots of historic mansions all over. Um, it's just a, a great place to to be. There's bars and restaurants and boutiques and shops, and it's a great place to be down here. Now, as uh, you mentioned earlier, Betsy, this is also a championship 
Whitewater event hosting the World Freestyle Championship here. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that event really is part and parcel of what you're trying to do here in terms of attracting so many different people. You've got athletes. You've got a strong community focus. You've got a family event. You've got an event, too, that's uh, partnering with uh, universities and so forth to put forth the screen and sustainability. That's a big part of this. But this, too, it really is a sporting event. Talk to us about that aspect. Oh, yes. This is one of the deepest fields of competitive whitewater athletes in the world. We have Ruth Gordon, Eric Jackson, Emily and Dane Jackson. Um, we have, I mean, these are these are former Olympians, all current world champions. Jason Craig is the current junior world freestyle championship or champion, and he he lives right here in this building in this high rise right next to us, so that he can come down here and practice every single day. Um, this is a very very competitive competitive event, and. Um, we kind of give out funny prizes like this year the top prize in addition to the money that they win they get samurai swords um we've given out giant wrestling belts we've given out um giant like bling necklaces um but the athletes really really compete for these prizes they they love coming to the river festival every year and it's you better bring your A game if you want to compete in the Arena River Festival. Um, the open competitions are open to anyone, but that the Pro Invitational is extremely, extremely competitive. You're, ski you're seeing scores from 8, 900 to 1,300 points, which that's a huge, huge ride to to get in one minute worth of tricks. That's that's hugely competitive. Now, as serious as the athletic competition is here this weekend, you've got the run amuck competition, which is a bit more lighthearted approach to having fun on the river. Talk to us about that. Lighthearted is definitely one way to describe it. Uh, yesterday, we had, I want to say, 920 runners. We had about 360 teams out here. Um, all of whom are in costumes. Sometimes we get groups of 10 or 12 people in costumes or just two dresses, everything from Tweedledee and Tweedledum to bumblebees and, you know, WWE wrestlers and, and all kinds of insane costumes. We do a big, huge costume contest that about 300 people enter every year. Um, and then we hand out prizes for the race for first place, second place, and third to last place. So that everyone really has a chance at winning, and then if you, if the top winner or the any of the winners are not in the park when we announce the awards, we'll give it away to we pick another team at random and and give their prize away. So anyone really has a chance at winning. It's a great fun event. It's just a little over two miles. People are crawling through mud pits and hurtling hay bales and doing giant hopscotches. We had a big foam pit yesterday that they ran through at the end to try and clean off. And their baton, it's a relay race, their baton is a big bar of soap that they have to hand off to, to their teammate. And it's grown every year. This is our third year. The first time we had a little over 100 teams. Last year we had 339 teams. And yesterday we had 460 teams. So... Now, as uh, that event has grown, I'm sure it's attracting interest from all over. Where are some of the people coming from who uh, come to participate for the festival? Um, we get a lot of people from Utah, a lot of people from northern and southern California, Oregon, um, like the five, kind of five-state mountain region. Um, a lot of 
people drive in. A lot of a lot of people who drive Subarus, <laughs> just coincidentally. So Subaru is a good a big sponsor of ours, but they definitely hit their target with with our with our audience. You'll see Subarus everywhere, so people can load in their dogs and their boats and their bikes and their running equipment and and head down here. They drive from all over. Now, as uh, we're sitting here, we're watching families, we're watching little kids running around here on the green space, enjoying uh, what's a very beautiful day here. As you reflect about this festival weekend, what kind of stands out most in your mind in terms of some of the high points for you? Well, I I am personally invested in this event. I love this event. I've worked on this event for six of the seven years it's been in existence. Um, I've worked on this event since I began my career, actually, and every year I get more and more involved. And I just I love the fact that it's the first really big event of the year in in Reno Tahoe. Reno Tahoe is known all over for our special events that we produce. There's um, events. I think we have over 220 event days a year. But the River Festival really kind of kicks it off, and it, it, it is the first time that you see thousands of families coming out and enjoying time together and spending time together. And I, I feel like it's really important that, you know, children spend time with their parents and, you know, families spend time together. Today's Mother's Day. My mom comes out every year to see me and brings my nieces and nephews out to see me. And, and um, I mean, the competitions are fun, the music is fun, the food is excellent, the yoga is fun, but it's just, it's nice, they can come out, it's a free event, it's in a beautiful setting, it's beautiful weather, and I just, I like, I like doing something for the community that they can just come out and truly just enjoy it. If people want to learn more about the festival, is there a website that they can visit? Yes, you can visit RenoRiverFestival.com. Well, Betsy McDonald, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoy the River Festival. Indeed. Thank you so much. When we return, we'll take you on a journey of American automotive history with our friends at the National Automobile Museum as World Footprints Radio continues from the Reno River Fest. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. Making sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov slash radon. A message from the U.S. EPA. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service on this station. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to Reno. One of the top automotive museums in America is in the heart of Reno. Bill Hera, founder of Hera's Hotels and Casinos, loves collecting cars, 
as they represented American ingenuity and history. Today, the best of his collection resides in the National Automobile Museum in Reno. Esther Isaac of the museum introduces this national treasure of American history as she talks about Mr. Hara and the origins of their collection. Uh, this collection was originally started by Bill Hara. There's a picture of Mr. Hara uh, on that montage of uh, pictures there. He was a very avid car collector. And he started, when did he start? 1948. He started collecting. He collected until he died in 1978. He had over 1,400 cars in his private collection at that time. It was open to the public, and they were housed in three large warehouses in Sparks, which, of course, is our sister city right now, neighboring city. Um, many of those cars were auctioned off uh, by Holiday Corporation, who bought the two hotels that he owned at the time, plus the collection they bought. Uh, they donated back to a foundation that was formed, a nonprofit organization, 175 of those really prime cars. So that's what is the um, nucleus of this collection. We have approximately 220 cars here currently. We're not in an acquisition mode. We no longer restore. But it's a great place to kind of tell the history of the automobile through the, the layout of this museum. One of the things that makes the museum special is that it takes you back in time through its period street scenes where you can see and feel the cars in a most intimate way. When this museum opened 20 years ago, it set kind of a new tone for automobile museums. It's uh, laid out in period street scenes, which you'll of course see and be very obvious when you get in there. And so we go through the last 100 years plus of the automobile as it relates to American society. We do have some foreign cars in here, but it's really how all that mixed with American society. We have a turn of the century street, the 1930s street, 1950s street, and uh, a modern street, which we're getting ready to modernize. <laughs> it's kind of like yesterday land and it used to be Tomorrowland and Disney. Anyway, um, we also have four galleries, which house the majority of the collection. And there are many one-of-a-kind vehicles, many uh, experimental, uh, and some very unique uh, from an automotive standpoint. Among the collection of cars are some pretty unique ones, like the all-copper Rolls-Royce, as Jay Hubbard of the museum describes. This copper Rolls is always a, a crowd pleaser. It's built, hand-built on a wooden frame with solid sheets of copper. There's no paint, no, no clear coat, no nothing. This is a bare metal automobile. It was common practice as, a, uh, as an older luxury car kind of fell out of favor that you would do something else. Because they were usually still a fine machine, they just weren't modern enough. The body was maybe a little worn. And many of them were built into what they called skiff automobiles. And if you look at this particular car, it, the back end tapers back like a boat mounted backwards on the chassis. They were a summer car. You know, it's just kind of a, a sports car of their time. The family that owned the automobile is, has it on loan to us. Unfortunately, the gentleman passed away two years ago, so we don't know what's going to become of the car. Cars have always been about the expression of individuality, and one of the unique cars in the collection is the Phantom Corsair, built for Russ Hines of the famous Hines 57 and Ketchup family, as Jay tells us. This is the Phantom Corsair. This is a custom-built car for Russ Hines of Hines 57 varieties Ketchup Fortune. Russ Hines is a 26-year-old nautical architect in Southern California, and he's driving a cord sedan, much like the green one we saw back down there. It's just not quite flashy enough, so he sketches out this design on a cocktail napkin. He builds a couple of models and has them wind tunnel tested. He finally gets it as slippery as he wants, and he takes it to Bowman and Schwartz in Pasadena, California. He takes his cord, and he takes his drawings, and he says, build me this car. 
$26,000 later, in 1938 dollars, he comes up with this. It's a, I say, it's a, it's a front-wheel drive V8 cord drivetrain, uh, 289 cubic inches and um, four speeds. The problems it does have is it's impossible to see out of. Even for a short fellow like me, I'm looking just underneath the, head, the, the, the header on the windshield. Um, it seats six people. Number four sits on my left. The steering wheel is moved to the center of the automobile, more or less, because the cord was a much narrower automobile. He built this car out wider because he wanted to have that envelope over the front wheels, but he never articulated the steering wheel over to the side. So we seat four people in the front, number four on my left, and then two people in the back, and they sit reverse looking out the rear windows. If you get on, uh, when you get home, go to YouTube and uh, search Phantom Corsair on YouTube, and they have all the selections from the only movie this car was in, which was... Uh, a young in heart, and they show photographs or film strips of the automobile driving. They also do a special effect with the car where the man walks into the dealership and supposedly they have like a dozen of these on display, but there's only ever one. While every car in the collection has a story, none is as remarkable as the story of the 1907 Thomas Flyer as it traveled around the world in the New York to Paris race, as we learn in this incredible tale from Jay. This is our New York to Paris racer. This is the automobile that went around the world. In 1907, New York Times and Lamatown newspapers decide to, to prove the automobile they're going to promote a race from New York to Paris. In 1908, six automobiles formed up in Times Square. This is the lone American entry. Thomas Automobile Company, Buffalo, New York. For the next hundred and, you know, gosh, all the way into uh, August. They went across the United States, up to Alaska, when they found out they couldn't cross the Bering Sea, they came back down to Seattle. They took a boat across the Pacific Ocean. They went across Japan, disembarked in Asia, and went across the Asia continent through Siberia, Imperial Russia, and Europe to be able to, you know, to complete this race. So this is the actual automobile. It was brought back to the United States. It was languished in several garages and was finally, when Mr. Harrow got it in 1964, there's a photograph of how bad it was when it got there. And uh, they brought George Schuster. He was the last surviving individual from that race, the only individual who was on this automobile during the entire race. And they brought him out. He's 90 years old, flew him to Reno. He looked the car over and he says, I've seen this before. It's not my car. My car's lost. So Harris crestfallen. Brings him back the next day, and they tear the automobile down in George Schuster's presence. And they get it all the way stripped down, and I've got a photograph of just bare frame rails sitting on sawhorses. Right. They rip the automobile down, and when they get the body off of the car, they find underneath a bunch of mud and crud this crack back here in the frame. And Schuster remembers repairing that crack in Siberia using railroad parts. They find up underneath the front there's hammer marks all over the flywheel. Somewhere out of Moscow, the flywheel had literally shook itself to pieces, and Schuster pinned it together with bits of, of old iron rivets to hold all the clutch assembly together. The, the frame member had broken the front on the, on the engine mount. He welded that together by hand. All these little repairs have suddenly come come aware to him here. He ha finally has to agree that this is the automobile he drove from New York to Paris. They started in the they started the 12th of February and they finished at the end of July. And they fought they fought this thing. They started out in the middle of winter because originally the guys that set up the race decided they would drive across the states up to Canada. They would cross the ice flows on the Bering Sea and come into Siberia and come down that way. Well, nobody had ever done that with a car. Schuster is the first car to get to Valdez, Alaska. <laughs> the guy says, you can't get a dog sled out of town, let alone an automobile. So they figure, okay, well, we can do it by dog sled, then we can get, we'll break the car down into 600-pound increments. And he's going to tear the car down into pieces and ship it out by dog sled. 
but that's going to cost $10,000 in 1908. And the race promoters say, no, no, we can't do that because we got three other cars behind you still. So they shipped him back to Seattle and they took him over by boat. There's very few notes on what all it took, how many gallons of fuel and all that good stuff. I know that when he left Seattle, he shipped 32 tires ahead of him for the automobile. And by the time he got to Moscow, he was hunting tires. You know, we talk about those white tires again and how fast those things wore out. They followed the railroad tracks, they tore the automobile up, and I say broke the frame, broke the engine mount. They changed these hubs here five times because they kept breaking them, the spring mounts onto the bottom there, and that pounding on the railroad tracks and the driving and the thing just beat the automobile up. At the end of the race, E.R. Thomas, owner of the company, says, George, I can't afford to give you everything I promised you. I can give you the car. And Schuster says, I want that piece of crap. It's beat up. <laughs> he turned it down. It sat around at Thomas's plant until the company went out of business. It was purchased by a newspaper man. He had it in a warehouse. It was purchased by the DuPont family. They kept it for a while. It was purchased by Henry Austin Clark after World War II. He had it in a museum in Long Island. When his museum went out of business, Mr. Hare bought it. And it's been here ever since. And he went to the point, Mr. Hare decided then to uh, picture in time to restore the car the way it looked when it finished the race. So you see all the little initials that were carved in it by people you know, from around the world as it passed through cities and towns. It was very common to scratch your initials in these sort of things you know, so that little part of you would go on. You know, it's just common practice stuff. So when it get, you know, gets to New York, oh, they left New York in a driving snowstorm. Uh, they, 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 were, they were up you know, on the big woolly coats and the whole business you can see there. They were fighting in New York, get, just getting to Albany or, and all the way to Buffalo. They were having horses or other automobiles precede them, breaking the snow so the car could pass through, or they'd get out and shovel. By the time they got to Buffalo, they had bent the truss rods in here from hitting, hitting the snow. They say, bent the truss rods and broke these housings. And that's just getting across New York. And then by the time they get out of the snow below Chicago, now they're fighting mud. And every night they'd hit a small town, they'd find the volunteer fire station and have the wheels hosed off, because in the morning the wheels would be frozen with these huge balls of mud into them. So they'd hose the car down the night before. Then Schuster, when he put this car to bed, you know, he'd you know, clean up this, these wheels, go through and do all your lubrication. He had to drain all the coolant out of the engine because they didn't have antifreeze. Every morning he had to refill this thing, warm the system all up, hand crank it to get it to start. And it's, it's a 451 cubic engine with a straight, inch, straight exhaust pipe that sits right underneath you back here. So if you can imagine hanging onto this thing 18, 20 hours a day with no power steering, no heater, no air conditioning, no power brake. They started out with a Conestoga top. They found out that that was shoveling so much wind and snow in on top of them, they threw that thing away before they got out of New York. One newspaper man, two people from, uh, from Thomas, and then had one other fellow they picked up as a guide. It's quite a story. This is one of those little things they don't teach you in history. We hear all about the Wright brothers and such as, but this, this automobile here, this, this trek is what proved the automobile could go anywhere. This is, this is like the granddaddy of all off-road racers. He blew the transmission twice in the car. At one time, he's you know out in the middle of Nevada the first time, and he's, he's hiking in until he finally borrows a horse from somebody, and they end up going into Goldfield, Nevada, where they, he knows there's another one of these automobiles and talk hmm. the doctor that owns the car into letting him steal the transmission out of the car. <laughs> I promise the company will send you a new tranny. They get into Siberia, and the transmission starts to fall apart then, and they're, they're packing the thing with... Uh, with Vaseline and wagon grease, and they finally run out of petroleum lubrication. They finally pack it with beef tallow and fat in the middle mm. of the summer. Can you imagine what this thing smelled? Finally, it splits and it goes to pieces. Schuster takes off. He's already he's already cabled Thomas in New York to send me a new tranny. So there's a tranny coming across the Atlantic and Schuster coming across to Siberia, mm. and they're trying to meet somewhere <laughs> in the middle. 
with no telephones and no yeah. GPS and nothing yeah. like that, strictly going by you know telegraph wires. He finally gets met up with the transmission. Meanwhile, the fellow he left on the car to watch it, he's got so much time on his hands, he takes the transmission apart and with common hand tools, he drills into the gears where the teeth are broke off, drills into the gear, cranks bolts into where the mm. teeth had broken off, files them off by hand, all right, mm. puts the transmission all back together and proceeds to drive the car out to where it was. Exactly. He gets another several hundred miles on the automobile before it breaks again. Mm. But by that time, Schuster has caught up with them with the new transmission. And they've rechanged the transmission and off they go again. Were these guys engineers, machinists? What? Schuster, Schuster was a mechanic, of a troubleshooter, and basically kind of the delivery man for Thomas. This is a $4,000 car, so that's a pretty big piece of change. Mm -hmm. when, and automobiles are still very young in 1908. So when you bought an automobile like that, they would deliver the automobile to someone who could teach you how to drive it, teach you how to maintain it and operate the automobile. Mm -hmm. So that was Schuster's job. He knew these cars like nobody else. Mm -hmm. What was the prize for winning? Bragging rights, mm -hmm. mostly. Um, Thomas said he spent $100,000 to run that race between Schuster's pay and, and the other George and, and you know, the automobile expenses and that sort of stuff. You know, so nobody caught up with any money. They did get a very nice trophy eventually. Hmm. <laughs> and that's the largest, uh, largest trophy ever awarded. My. It's like 1,600 pounds. So it's made of marble and silver and bronze representing the different countries that entered the race. Unfortunately, it's seen some hard times banging around with the car, but they still have it. Truly, and this, and this one here still runs and drives. We had it out uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. Had it out several times during 2008, and then a year later, um, Jackie had a presentation they were doing on our exhibit. So we pulled it out, fired it up, drove it over the, uh, the baseball stadium, and mm -hmm. had photographs and all taken up. Wow. It's a very capable car. Very fast automobile. Uh, I know a fellow in... Uh, Tennessee that has another 19.7. There's probably only 50 Thomas vehicles left in the whole mm. world, and that includes motorcycles and everything. Mm. These big flyers being the most valuable. And uh, as it is, as as just a 19.7 Thomas, if it did not have any history at all, if it just was, let's say, if you just found this car today, it's worth several hundred thousand dollars all by itself, just as a Thomas. But what would what would the right flyer be worth? I mean, well, you know, what would the spirit of St. Louis be worth? Right, exactly. You know, and that's where I put this automobile. Yeah. It's, it's, this, it's just, just as important a car. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had to sit down and make a list over the last hundred plus years of automobiles and list in singular important automobiles. I mean, the Model T is important for putting the world on wheels and things like that. But singular automobiles that have accomplished one machine that did one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and this has got to be in your top five list no matter how you put it. It's just, it's that important a car, and Mr. Hera managed to find it, and we've been blessed enough to keep it. All the other, Schuster is the only car that went to Alaska, like they were supposed to. So everybody else is assessed a 28-day penalty. So because of that 28-day penalty, because this car went all the way to Valdez, Schuster is declared the winner of the race. Jay Hubbard of the National Automobile Museum, the Hera Collection, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Oh, well, my pleasure. For more about Reno Tahoe, go to visitrenotahoe.com. When we come back, we'll go underwater treasure hunting with Dr. E. Lee Spence as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm James from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to and I want you to support Iron Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. I'm a doctor. 
I'm a teacher. I live in the South. California is my home. I speak fluent Spanish. No hablo espanol. I have brown eyes. My eyes are blue. We're very different people, but we do have something in common. I made a donation to the Red Cross. When disaster struck and I needed help, her gift to the American Red Cross changed my life. When you support the American Red Cross, you change a life, starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org and find out about life-changing opportunities in your area. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offside, number 72, five yards. Check out this man leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl, provided as a public service by the station and team coalition. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about. To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Let's return to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. We're here in Reno at the Reno River Festival. Dr. Ely Spence is an internationally known expert on shipwrecks and has long been considered one of the founding fathers of marine archaeology. Lee discovered numerous historically significant shipwrecks, including the wreck of the Hunley, the first submarine in history to sink an enemy ship. But he considers his identification of George Trenholm as the real Rhett Butler to have been his most interesting discovery. Lee joins us today to fill us in on these interesting discoveries. What prompted your interest in marine archaeology? It was many different things, but uh, the largest part of it was actually reading, reading Robinson Crusoe and different stories like that. I'm a scuba diver, as as you know, Lee, um, but are marine archaeologists, are they um, considered mostly commercial or leisure divers for the most part? Well, marine archaeologists fall really into two categories. One would be, you know, government and academia, and they would be the, I hate to use the term, but socialistic underwater archaeologists, and then the ones that work for private industry, which are largely treasure hunters, and they would be the capitalistic underwater archaeologists. And which, which side of the fence, I guess, do you fall on? Do you, do you spend your time finding shipwrecks and treasures or searching for these mythological underwater cities, or are you more on the research side? I do research more than anything else, and it's my true passion is researching. Uh, And I love the history, and I'll be reading in the archives, and you'll see me crying, or suddenly I'll find the missing part of a puzzle, and I'll be jumping up and down almost like a football player who's uh, just scored, (laughs) spiking the ball and I'll be yelling back in the backs of the library. Uh, But I'm sort of in the middle. I do treasure hunting, and I do the the pure academia. We've had so much focus recently on our oceans and maritime ecology because of the the BP uh, oil rig blowout in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. 
And we've discovered that, you know, there are tremendous depths to these oceans, and these oceans retain a lot of secrets just because we don't know a lot about them. You know, I'm just amazed at the depths to which we now find ourselves drilling for oil. What is it about marine archaeology and, 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 and even about our oceans that you know, make it such a, such a frontier for exploration and discovery because you know, we just don't really explore it the same way we do space? No, we, I kind of feel that we know less about the oceans than we know about space right now. Far more money has been put into space by the government than into the oceans. You know, researching what's down there. Uh, but two-thirds of the world is covered by our oceans, and it's a lot easier to get to than going to the moon or to Mars or something. And I think that the government really should be doing more. As far as shipwrecks go, there are well over two million shipwrecks that have taken place in the world, mm-hmm. so there's a lot there to find. And a very, very small percent of those have been located. I doubt that it's even 1% of them have been located. My goodness. Well, I mean, is there a certain geological area that, you know, that's rumored to have an overabundance of shipwrecks or in, in pirate ships, uh, sunken pirate ships? Is, is, there a, and is there an area that you're specifically focused on for both your research and, and uh, your treasure hunting activities? Well, most shipwrecks actually take place in less than 30 feet of water, even though there's thousands of feet of water in much of the ocean, uh, the world's oceans. Most of the shipwrecks take place because they ran aground you know, in a storm or from poor navigation or whatever. That's the cause of most of them. And then another cause would be running into each other, so that puts them in the sea lanes and the most crowded parts of the sea lanes are right as they're getting to the ports, and so that's where the shipwrecks are. Hmm. And, and is there a, a, a specific area that's, you know, that's rumored to have uh, a lot of these shipwrecks, or are they just kind of spread all over in shallow, shallow ports? Uh, they're all over. Uh, if, like I live, uh, much of my life I've lived in the Charleston, South Carolina area, and if you swung an arc from the entrance to Charleston Harbor, a five-mile radius arc, you would take in over 2,000 wrecks in that one area. And if you went up to New York Harbor for its approaches, you would have many times that amount. And it's more a function of the amount of traffic that was going in and out of the location. As you had a chance to study most of the wrecks and uh, look at certain trends uh, or certain patterns that may come from some of the work, where do most of the ships, are they commercial ships, are they military ships, are they the ships of, you know, bounty hunters from, from the 14th and 15th centuries who were in search of a great wealth or transferring great wealth from Europe to the New World? Tell us about, tell us about this universe of ships that uh, become the focus of a treasure hunter, let's say? Well, most of the treasure hunters focus on the Spanish galleon, and Spain, of course, effectively conquered the New World in the early 1500s, and they, main control, they maintain control of 
the properties that they uh, took over for about 300 years. It was the early 1800s whenever they lost control. So for 300 years, they were effectively raping and pillaging the New World. Mm -hmm. They uh, conscripted or enslaved, or however you want to put it, millions of people and put them to work mining gold and silver in the New World. And they were taking this and they were loading it on ships and sending it back to uh, Spain every year. And so there was, in effect, a river of silver and gold that was coming back for a 300-year time period. And every year you had ships that were lost through running aground or through weather or whatever mm -hmm. in that 300 years. And so most treasure hunters focus on those, but there's actually an equal, I say equal, a much larger amount of treasure to be found on merchant ships that have been lost over the years. Now, I'm just curiously, is there is there any protection afforded uh, these ships? I mean, I'm certainly, a, the, the treasures are, you know, finders keepers for the most part, but um, the, the ships, you know, are, are historical artifacts, and, and I'm just curious if there's any protection afforded uh, to these, you know, this property um, from the government, you know, from the, the, the country of origin or um, our, our country, if, you know, the international, uh, international laws inter intervene to, to offer any type of protection, because I can imagine that treasure hunting uh, on uh, shipwrecks or, or, you know, shipwreck diving uh, is fairly a fairly dangerous uh, sport and um, you know just because of the length of time these uh, these ships have been immersed in in water um, so I'm just you know wondering if you can talk about some of the the international laws and and uh, that that may come into play well the laws are very complex and it depends nation owned the ship originally uh, what country's waters uh, the ship was lost in, who the owners were originally, whether there's an insurance company that may have been involved, if salvers have found it over the years, you know, other than the ones who are presently trying to work it, uh, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in the state in state waters, or if it's just in federal waters. So there are many, many different laws that affect it. And then you have the traditional law of salvage and the traditional law of fines. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the laws that are being passed are designed to restrict people from looking for and salvaging shipwreck. And unfortunately, uh, even though those laws are designed to protect uh, the public's interest in the history and the archaeology and all, it actually works the opposite because that if a law is passed that makes it illegal, it doesn't really stop it from happening. It just makes it go underground. So sure. people don't do the work properly, and they don't report it. They keep their fines secret. Uh, or they obey the law, and then the discovery is never made, and so the public loses out and that the wreck is never found. Mm -hmm. uh, what the laws need to be, is they need to have laws setting the standards for working, not making working illegal, but just setting standards for 
how much information, well, first of all, how qualified the people need to be to do the work, and then what standards the work needs to be done depending on the importance of that particular shipwreck. Now, talk to us about some of your important discoveries like the Hunley. Well, the Hunley was the first ship in the history of the world to sink an enemy vessel. Um, it had been something that had been dreamed of literally since the time of Alexander the Great. And so for thousands of years, people had uh, dreamed of submarines and of using them in warfare to attack the enemy and sink their ships. And it was certainly tried in lots of different wars, including our American Revolution. Uh, but the first one to actually accomplish that was the Hunley and it was designed specifically for that purpose and it ultimately succeeded in that. Uh, it ended up being sunk you know, itself, uh, but it did achieve its mission. And in effect, our modern submarine fleet is an outgrowth of what the Huntley accomplished. When we return, Lee will share the story behind his most interesting discovery, the real Rhett Butler, as World Footprints Radio continues. sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov slash radon. A message from the U.S. EPA. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio every Tuesday. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back. Here's more with Dr. E. Lee Spence. One of the things I'm interested in knowing is this discovery of yours of the uh, real Rhett Butler, George Trenholm. And I'm curious what the correlation is between uh, Rhett Butler and marine archaeology. Well, of course, Rhett Butler was a blockade runner captain and gone with the wind. And he was accused of uh, making off of the gold of the Confederate Treasury. And he had this you know, romance with Scarlett O'Hara and all. It's a great story. But what he actually has to do with it is that I found a number of blockade runners that were owned by a man named George Trenum. And while I was researching those shipwrecks and their cargoes and all, uh, I realized absolutely that George Trenum was the historical basis for Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. Margaret Mitchell had kept that a secret because when the book came out, uh, there were a lot of people who were still alive who had, who characters in the book were based on, and so she claimed her book was pure fiction, and I was through my research I was able to uh, figure out who almost every character uh, was based on, uh, where she got particular stories and incidents in the book. They came out of uh, diaries and published memoirs and letters and confidential documents and 
but she was related to about half of the people in the book. And at one point, when I was tracking down the love story, I realized that it was probably based uh, on a lady named Ruby Senak, was where the love story came from. Mm-hmm. And one of her first cousins was still alive when I was doing my research. Uh, she wasn't born during the Civil War. She was born uh, in 1900. But their lives had overlapped. And so I contacted her. And while I was talking with her, I said, look, a lot of the stuff you're talking about with Ruby, it sounds like Gone with the Wind. Did you ever know anyone that knew Margaret Mitchell? And she said, oh, Margaret was my cousin. <laughs> and, and, she, and then uh, I asked her, I said, well, I've got cousins in Georgia I've never met. Did you ever meet Margaret? And she said, uh, Oh, she used to come over to the farmhouse all the time. You know the farmhouse, the real Tara. I'll be darned. Yeah. And, but she went on to tell me lots of things that I had not known. I eventually met Margaret Mitchell's nephews. That's who inherited her fortune. And they told me a lot of stuff about Trenum that had not occurred to me, but they had actually known the story all of their lives. And different members of the Trenum family had known it, but there were others who had not because it had been a very closely held secret. Mm-hmm. Are, are you publishing any of this, Lee? I mean, this is fascinating history to me. Well, I did a book called uh, Treasures of the Confederate Coast, The Real Rep Butler and Other Revelations. Most of the book is simply accounts of different shipwrecks, hundreds of shipwrecks. But one of the chapters is on George Trenum, and it tells about my research. And uh, and there were even things like, uh, remember the scene in Gone with the Wind where uh, Rhett is trying to comfort Scarlet? He's the one that's facing death, mm-hmm. and she's the one with the tears running down her face. Mm-hmm. Well, that came out of real life. That was in the published memoirs of a man who witnessed that, mm. but it was Trenum, and the lady uh, the lady did have the tears run down her face. She did have the reputation for being fast and uh, very interesting. Wow. Interesting. Lee, talk to us a bit about some of the challenges that uh, you face and divers who are involved with this space. Uh, in these expeditions, and I'm curious as to the extent to which you have to rely on unmanned vehicles or robot subs to make some of the recoveries. Well, we have used uh, robotics on a number of my expeditions, but what I mentioned earlier is that most of the wrecks are in shallow water, Mm -hmm. and so a lot of it, it's fairly simple equipment, it's just a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work finding the wrecks, doing the research, waiting through the government red tape, getting investors together because it's expensive, and finding enough motive to get people to go do, to help you make these discoveries and recover the stuff that will make it worthwhile to them financially. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so your your expeditions are are basically funded by investors. Are there any um, government uh, research uh, dollars that that 
help you uh, pursue these, these I've done them. I've done them both ways. I've done the, the government work where it's done with grants or uh, whatever, you know. Uh, but I've also done them where it's private investors. And we really are able to accomplish a lot more when it's private investors. Mm -hmm. The government uh, simply does not have sufficient funds to do this work. And it can, uh, right now I'm putting together an expedition. The total funding is $3 million. Well, a large grant for something like the National Endowment for the Humanities is only $50,000. It's considered a large grant. And a very large grant would be in the hundreds of thousands. So when you're talking about a project costing millions, mm -hmm. it has to be private enterprise. And what is this expedition you're, you're work, currently working on now? Well, it's sort of multi-pronged. I had found some wrecks years ago before I had completed research on some of the wrecks that I realize now there's gold on some of them. And we actually found... Uh, at one site, we brought up gold and silver, but we really didn't know the history of the vessel. And we only stayed on it for about a week because we were going to another another site to work. Mm -hmm. And then another, uh, I just didn't believe they, the gold would have still remained because the water was so shallow. Well, I want to go back to that because now I understand that back in the 1800s, they didn't have the the means to cope with sand and the wreck had wrecked in sand and it immediately filled with sand and they mention it in the 1800s reports the sand but uh, I understand now that you know, what that really means so I'm going back to some wrecks I already found but I'm also going to some wrecks that uh, I believe are extremely rich but I can't say much about it for two reasons. One is I'm not trying to I'm not trying to hit somebody up for money over the radio, and the other is when when we do, it's all confidential. Right, right. I, I'm just thinking, you know, as a scuba diver, I would love to <laughs> I would love to join you just just for the uh, for the adventure, actually. Well, that actually would be fun. That's the question. <laughs> Can divers join you on some of these expeditions? Uh, yes, we uh, we do we do use a number of divers on expeditions, and some of them are people that are paid to work with us. Others are just volunteers. Some are sort of a mix, where a little bit of pay and and volunteer. Some people get shares in it. Some of the investors say, "Hey, I'll invest in it, but I want to come with you out on the boat." So that's it's a mix of it. Lee, in our closing minutes, uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, uh, two of the organizations you are involved with, the Sea Research Society and the International Diving Institute. The Sea Research Society is a nonprofit organization. It, its purposes are really strictly educational, and people can look at site up at searesearchsociety.org, 
and there's information on it there. And we've done a number of expeditions over the years, and those expeditions are open to the public. Uh, the site is a fairly new site, but we've already got uh, information on it. It is worth going and looking at. And you ask about the International Diving Institute. That's a commercial diving school that I'm an owner and officer in. And uh, what we do is we teach commercial diving. And I'm not talking about scuba. I'm talking about hard hat diving, but not the old-fashioned hard hat. It's the modern equipment. And we teach a 640-hour course. You can learn scuba literally in a weekend. It takes four months, 40 hours a week to pass our basic course for the commercial diving. And, and those divers, just to put it in perspective, are, are some of the, some of, like, rig divers and things of that sort, the divers that probably uh, were involved, say, with, uh, with this, um, the BP rig in, um, in the Gulf, but that's a type of commercial diving activities, those types of activities that, that, are, that are done. Is that correct? The standing rigs that are built onto the bottom and all, uh, they use commercial divers every day. And so all of those rigs have been worked on and have people working on them that are commercial divers. Mm -hmm. And there's thousands of those rigs. Uh, but so there's a wide range of things our divers end up doing. And there's a lot of call for it. But we can change a person's life from there being just a high school graduate uh, who doesn't even know how to scuba dive we can bring them in four months where their life has just totally changed. Their work ethic has changed. I think every, everything about them, they'll have lost weight <laughs> because we put them through almost like, almost like basic. Uh, but it's, it's hard. But they really learn a lot. Mm -hmm. They're only about, uh, well, there's less than a dozen commercial diving schools in all of uh, the Americas for South America, Central America, North America, there's not even a dozen schools that teach what we teach. My goodness, my goodness. And certainly, you know, for any of our listeners who, who have uh, um, been excited about listening to your discoveries, your activities, and, 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 and may even, you know, be thinking about a, a, a career transition, um, I'm a big proponent of scuba diving. I think that's just a wonderful travel experience. It's a wonderful world beneath the surface of the of the ocean. And um, and so, what website we can people go to to learn more about the International Diving Institute? Well, the International Diving Institute teaches commercial diving. It also teaches scuba, but mm -hmm. its main focus is the commercial and they can go to the internationaldivinginstitute.com and there's all the information they'll need their phone numbers and stuff about the curriculum the certifications everything it's very complete mm, okay wonderful well dr e lee spence aka the indiana jones of the sea that's my <laughs> nickname for you lee <laughs> In fact, your Facebook picture with a hat, you very, very uh, Indiana Jones uh, looking there. <laughs> yeah, tell people to go to my Facebook page and look me up or to Google profile. And on Facebook, it's just facebook.com slash shipwrecks. 
Yes. Okay. Yes, and and uh, if they can't find you, we're friends, so uh, they can always uh, visit uh, visit my profile and find you through there. But uh, thank you so much, jo- uh, Lee, for joining us today on World Footprints. Tanya, Ian, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and others. So join us on our social networks and sign up for our newsletter from our website, worldfootprints.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, leave positive footprints one step at a time.